Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Hebert. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. Educate your patients and your community about the benefits of chiropractic care with the Chiropractic Science slides presentation. Currently, there is 25% off on the slides for the next week. The slides are customizable to your clinic and include a short evidence-based message from the scientific literature along with the reference. Included with the purchase is a video demonstrating how to customize the slides, a Word document with all references, and of course, the slides in portrait and widescreen modes. You can even convert the presentation into a video if you'd like. Check out the reviews of the slides on our website. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Jeffrey Hebert. Jeff Hebert is a professor and the CCRF NBHRF, Chair of Musculoskeletal Health Research at the University of New Brunswick, as well as an adjunct professor at Murdoch University in Australia. Jeff's career to date includes 18 years of experience in faculty, clinical, and administrative positions in Canada, the United States, and Australia. More recently, he was the Associate Dean of Research in Murdoch University's School of Psychology and Exercise Science. Previous appointments include positions as a Senior Lecturer of Rehabilitation Science at Murdoch University and Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Utah. He has earned a Bachelor's Degree in Psychology from the University of Denver, as well as a doctorate in chiropractic from Palmer College, and a PhD in exercise science from the University of Utah. He serves as an associate editor for the journal Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. Before pursuing an academic career, Jeff worked as an outpatient and hospital-based clinician in a multidisciplinary environment, including pain medicine, sports medicine, and spine surgery. Dr. A. Bear, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Hey, thanks, Dean. Appreciate uh, being asked to join you here, and uh, I've been been a fan of the podcast for some time now, and really pleased to participate on this end. Great. Well, as I like to ask all my guests at first, uh, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Oh, I, I, I think like many of us who, who go into chiropractic, my main interest was uh, simply to be part of the healthcare delivery system in some capacity. I had originally set out to go to physical therapy school uh, in the States 
And uh, my, my brother decided uh, that he wanted to be a chiropractor. So I started looking into the chiropractic profession and ended up going that route. And uh, we went through Palmer College together uh, some, uh, gosh, 19 years ago now. Wow, that's that's pretty awesome. Uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, hearing a little bit about uh, your the time that you spent in private practice and that uh, multidisciplinary type of environment. And then obviously we'll get into how you got to the University of Utah. Yeah, sure. Uh, I had a pretty uh, variable uh, experience as a clinician. Um, straight out of school, I, I moved to Vail, Colorado, um, and I, I worked in a, a multidisciplinary sports medicine clinic there. Uh, shout out to the guys at Vail Integrative Medical Group. They're still up and running. And uh, uh, Joel Dekanek uh, is the, the principal person there who runs that practice. Um, so this was a, a group of chiropractors and physical therapists and athletic trainers at the time. They've since uh, brought on some physicians as well. And we were located in Vail, Colorado, which is sort of a sports medicine mecca. Uh, just down the street from us was the, the famed uh, Stedman Hawkins Clinic. And so it was a really interesting experience in that we got to work with very high-level athletes, some athletes from the, uh, the U.S. ski team, and uh, there were hockey teams that did their training camps in Vail uh, because of the high-altitude environment in the summertime. And so it was a really stimulating environment, and I was there for several years and, and really, really enjoyed myself. Um, there, there happened to be a uh, spine surgeon uh, at Stedman Hawkins who was also a, a chiropractor. It was uh, Don Corman, who I, I believe Don is still there. Um, and so he would invite us into the OR and, and let us watch procedures and and uh, we got to follow him around a bit and, and watch him assess patients. And so it was a really rich learning environment for me as a, as a new clinician coming out of school. I, I learned a great deal at that time. Um, but after a few years, uh, my wife and I decided to move to Park City, Utah, uh, so not too far away. Um, and I took a job working in a multidisciplinary pain medicine clinic with uh, uh, interventional pain specialists and neurologists and, and got sort of a, a very different kind of clinical experience there, uh, working with people who primarily were suffering from chronic pain and uh, got to uh, see many different kinds of procedures done that I hadn't done, that I hadn't uh, previously experienced. And so again, a, a good learning experience. Um, and I, I was there for a number of years, and just uh, by sort of a fluke, I had sent a report to a neurosurgeon for a patient that I wanted to refer for surgical consultation. And uh, the report that I sent kind of started a dialogue between the two of us, and it ended up uh, with me eventually uh, getting a clinical appointment to the Utah University Hospital, which was a, a very large uh, research-intensive um, level one trauma hospital. And I, I got appointed to the Department of Neurosurgery there and, and started working with the surgeons and providing some non-operative care. And uh, to me, that was sort of the, the, the peak of my clinical experience. Um, and, you know, we, we clearly saw a number of very interesting clinical cases. And again, I, I kept learning uh, and learned from the surgeons a great 
a great deal. Well, that's really tremendous. Uh, pretty awesome experiences. And so I can see where, where you got the bug maybe for research and also how you've got exercise integrated into your research endeavors as well. So can you tell us then how, how you got to the university of Utah and, and doing your PhD? Uh, well, I, I, I was at Utah. A few things sort of um, came together for me at, at the same the same time. So I, I came to the conclusion that, that my, my personality may not be ideally suited for clinical practice and that I had this ongoing frustration that I couldn't necessarily or very well predict what would happen with my patients when I, when I would treat them. So if I saw a patient with back pain, and I would think to myself, oh, you know, clearly this patient is ideally suited for spinal manipulation. And I have a very high level of confidence that, that they're going to do really well with treatment. Well, they didn't always do very well. And then I would have other cases where I, I felt like I didn't really have a high level of confidence with what I was doing, but they did really well. So this lack of uh, predictability in, in understanding uh, the patients that I was ideally suited for helping was was difficult to cope with at times. And then just not knowing things that, that I really felt like we should have the answers to um, drove me to shifting my mindset from purely being a clinician to thinking more and more about research and, and kind of being in a stimulating environment really helped with that transition. Um, it just so happened that, that my PhD supervisor, uh, who is Julie Fritz, who's a physical therapist, uh, was in my community. And um, so I had a talk with Julie, and she was doing all this really exciting work with developing and, and trying to validate clinical prediction rules for therapies like spinal manipulation and, and exercise and traction therapy. And the whole sort of thrust with that work was identifying uh, who the likely responders to these therapies were. And it, it just made so much sense for me uh, at the time that, that it was really a great fit. And so I, I enrolled in this PhD program at the same time as a, a, a good uh, friend and colleague of mine, Shane Copenhaver. And Shane and I were able to go through the PhD experience together. Shane, Shane's a physical therapist and had very similar interests as, as I had. And uh, so it just was uh, a bit of luck, probably, and circumstance, and uh, things just happened to work out really well. Yeah, I'll say that's great. <clears throat> and we appreciate everything you do, uh, all the research that you're generating, and we look forward to many, many years of reading your research. And so why don't we get into at least some of the articles that, that you published on, some of the... Uh, I guess some of the themes uh, we'll, we'll get into, but uh, you've published in some top journals such as Spine, European Spine Journal, Scientific Reports, and and many others. And and the themes that I mentioned just a minute ago, uh, we we talked previously to this, and and you'd come up with a few themes. Uh, theme one being uh, what factors are associated with the development of back pain in young people and adults. Uh, theme two, the, the link between back pain, health behavior, and risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And theme three, sport participation, and how that can be viewed as a health intervention for young people. So if we could get started on these themes, the, the first one again, what factors are associated with the development of back pain in young people 
and adults. And I, I know there are a few articles uh, perhaps that uh, you might mention, but could you give us an overview of this theme and, and perhaps summarize those, those studies? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, th- this is just one of those fundamental questions, right? What, why do people develop back pain? And surely um, most anyone who's not involved in patient care and not involved in this area of, of research would assume that we've answered these questions really well. But, but the fact remains that we haven't. And, you know, the vast majority of um, cases of back pain, the, the vast majority of the time when someone experiences pain in their back, we can't tell them for sure why that pain is there. So we can't identify a pain generating uh, structure. And that's, that's a difficult thing, right? So when we, we say that 90 or 95% of patients um, experience nonspecific back pain, that, that's not a very satisfying explanation for patients, and it's, it's not a very satisfying explanation for clinicians either. Um, so this is an area that we clearly need to improve in. And so uh, with my colleagues, we're doing some work to try and find our way uh, a bit in this area. Certainly, you know, many people are working on this problem, and uh, a lot of research has gone into trying to answer questions like this in the past. Um, we focused on, on a couple of things. Uh, one of our recent papers on the topic that was published in the European Spine Journal uh, just a couple of months ago, I think it was, was looking at the role of um, pubertal development and growth in the development of back pain in, in young people. So this was done in a large longitudinal study in, in Denmark called the CHAMP study, which is the, uh, the Childhood Health uh, Activity and Motor Performance School Study, Denmark, uh, which involves about 1,000 kids that have been followed for several years now. And one of the things that they track in this cohort of children is how much back pain they experience. And they track it in a very interesting way. Um, Usually, when we measure back pain, when we look at other large studies that have been done on this topic, we simply ask people, you know, have you had back pain in the past month or have you had back pain in the past year? And, you know, we may make it a little more interesting and ask them, you know, instead of just having uh, had experienced back pain, if they've had to actually seek health care uh, for their pain or if they've missed work or school because of their pain. And, and that helps to get to the the construct of meaningful back pain. But what they did in the CHAMP study, I think, was was even better than that. They used a, a text messaging system uh, to communicate with parents each and every week. So in, in this particular study, uh, we had uh, back pain data over the course of three and a half years. So that's weekly measures of back pain over three and a half years. So we end up with this huge amount of, of really interesting data that I think gives a, a much richer picture of the pain experience than simply checking in with people on an annual basis and, and having them attempt to recall uh, how much pain they've had over the past 12 months. So each and, and every week, they tracked whether a, a child had reported pain. They tracked this through parental reporting. When uh, a child did report that they had pain, they would actually send a clinician 
out to the, the child. So this was either a, a physical therapist or a chiropractor or a physician. And they would examine the child and take a history and uh, diagnose, you know, as best they could what the problem was. So uh, what we had was three and a half years of back pain reporting that we were able to classify in different ways. Uh, we had self-reported pain and we had pain that was non-traumatic pain. And then we had pain that was classified as, as arising from a traumatic source or injury. So that was really interesting. During this course of time, they also used uh, Tanner stage assessments of these children uh, on several different occasions over three and a half years to measure their level of pubertal development, and they measure their height in a standardized fashion. So we have these sort of changes in height that are occurring in these kids and changes in pubertal development and tracking of back pain. And we were able to put this information together to help identify the fact that both growth, getting taller, and going through, advancing through the Tanner pubertal stages were both associated with, and, and we make an argument that these are likely to be risk factors for the development of spine pain in children. Gotcha. Um, so when I hear that, and you know, I, I think about common language that people would use. Uh, we've all heard the term growing pains. Is this something like that, Jeff? I, I, I think so. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know that we know what a growing pain is, but I don't mind the term. Um, I, I think the main issue here is that uh, from a clinician's perspective, um, what we need to recognize is that spinal pain and back pain is very common in young people. Now, that's not necessarily, that truth isn't necessarily consistent with my clinical training, where I was taught that back pain in children is a relatively rare thing to encounter, and that when you do encounter it, you should have a reasonably high index of suspicion that something concerning is taking place here, right? Um, our best evidence to date tells us that those things aren't really true that a lot of children have back pain. And the vast majority of the time, just like in, uh, in grown-ups, it's not a concerning issue, right? This isn't something that we should be concerned with. It's not something that we should be ordering a lot of tests for. Um, so I, I think the fact that we identified growth and pubertal development as risk factors for back pain, the, the, the sort of bummer about that is that, you know, we can't modify those things. You know, there's there's nothing that we can do to stop people from growing, and certainly we wouldn't want to do that. And so it doesn't necessarily link to a very intuitive intervention to help people. Um, but the important thing here is that when children present with back pain, when children and parents present with the child's back pain, they should be reassured that this is not a concerning thing. They should be encouraged, the child should be encouraged to maintain a reasonable level of physical activity that, you know, the, the typical catchphrases, hurt doesn't equal harm. Um, I, I think that really highlights the best clinical approach that we can take in most cases of children with back pain. Now, certainly there's going to be those rare cases where there is a concerning etiology 
And we still need to pay attention to, to red flags and, and typical clinical practice to identify those when they occur. But, you know, the main message here is that pain is common and concerning things causing pain are very, very uncommon. Gotcha. Yeah, thanks for going through that. Uh, so with this discussion about these non-modifiable factors, in your literature view, uh, and just looking out over the science that, uh, that you've seen, are, are there any modifiable factors that clinicians can work with? Uh, or should we just at this point recognize that, okay, growth is just one of those things and, you know, it doesn't seem to be, you know, obviously we need them to grow. Uh, so I don't know what, what should we concentrate on perhaps as clinicians? Well, I, I, I think we need better information to really inform clinical decision-making here, right? We're still stuck in this situation where the vast majority of cases, even in children of, of back pain are nonspecific pain. And, and we don't, we don't know what the cause is. Um, so we don't necessarily know what the things are to modify, right? Um, now, certainly, many of our best prognostic uh, factors and, and, and best risk factors for the development of back pain are often psychosocial things, right? W- which is why that aspect of, of good clinical care that involves reassurance and advice to stay active, that's, that's really, really important information to pass on to patients. And that's why it's part of virtually every clinical guideline uh, to care for patients with back pain. Gotcha. But I think, you know, if I were to make a recommendation for chiropractors caring for, for people suffering with back pain, I think um, given the state of science currently, uh, we shouldn't get too wound up about an exact cause of back pain because we don't necessarily know enough to identify it the vast majority of the time. So it's not to say that we shouldn't make an attempt, but I think we really need to focus on our patients and measure things that patients care about and improve patients' lives in ways that, that matter to them and do our best to reduce their pain and pain, pain-related disability. So yeah. if, even if um, we don't know at the end of the day why a particular person has pain, the fact that they get better and are able to do things that they couldn't do previously, that's really all that matters. Yeah, I agree 100%. So thanks for going through that. Uh, another paper that I wanted to talk about was on the relationship of the lumbar multifidus muscle morphology to previous current and future low back pain. And so this gets us into uh, looking at adults now and some factors associated with pain. Can you tell us about that that study? Yeah, so so the multifidus muscles in, in the back um, are kind of interesting to me, you know, in... In school, I, I was always taught that, you know, these are small muscles that are there to, to rotate the segments of the spine. Um, but these muscles really seem to be important to uh, stabilizing that region of the spine and pelvis. And, and they probably play a really important role uh, with respect to segmental stability of the spine. And, you know, there's, I guess, biomechanical reasons for that. But... Um, a number of people have looked at this muscle and identified this phenomenon that takes place uh, in people who experience back pain. And that is that the, the normal contractile tissue of the muscle 
tends to get replaced by non-contractile uh, adipose tissue. So, you know, in, in your practices, if you start to look at, at this muscle on MRI instead of just focusing on, on the disc and nerve roots and move a little posterior to that, you'll see that there seems to be oftentimes in clinical populations a large uh, deposit of fat or intramuscular adipose tissue that that gets that that displaces the healthy lean contractile muscle. So because we tend to see that fat more commonly in clinical populations than in people who don't have problems with their back, it, it started uh, you know people really wondering whether this muscle was the key to understanding why some people have back pain or some people don't, or perhaps thought in a different way why people who experience back pain tend to experience recurrent episodes of back pain. You know, it's, it's led to a number of different theories of dysfunction in this muscle. Um, we've done a, a bit of work looking at the morphometry or the, the structure of the muscle with a particular eye towards this idea of contractile muscle getting replaced by fat. So um, I, I think the study that you're referring to is one that we published in Spine uh, uh, four or so years ago. And the title is The Relationship of Lumbar Multifidus Muscle Morphology to Previous Current and Future Low Back Pain, a Nine-Year Population Prospective Cohort Study. So again, this is a, a, a study that's using Danish data uh, from a, a larger study that's led by um, Per Care, who's a, a very good back pain researcher there in Denmark. A unique facet about the study is that it's a what we call a representative population. So when Per recruited uh, the participants to this study, he actually randomly sampled them from a particular region in Denmark. So that increases our confidence that... Uh, the types of things that we saw in this study can be generalized more broadly to, to larger populations. So pair followed these people starting from age 40. They were all 40 years of age, and he gathered up uh, about 400 patients in this cohort, and he followed them forward for nine years. And again, tracked how much back pain they experienced. And he also got MRI examinations done of them uh, serially over the nine years. And so we wanted to see if these changes that we thought would be important to the lumbar multifidus would predict what was happening with respect to their back pain, whether we could distinguish between people who did and did not have back pain and whether we could predict into the future how much back pain they would experience. And, you know, what we, what we saw, the results of the study were a bit of a mixed bag in that when these participants were 40 years of age. There did seem to be an association between how much fat they had in the muscle and how much back pain they experienced. So those two things were linked. But when we tried to look at the association between how much fat was in the muscle at age 40 and how much back pain they would experience as a 45-year-old, things started to fall apart. We, we lost the thread there. There was no longer a significant association between uh, that potential cause of pain, uh, meaning fat replacement, and the development of pain itself. So, you know, I, as with most studies, 
we couldn't answer all the questions we set out to answer, and we we ultimately ended up developing new questions to ask with future studies. Um, but one of those, to me, important questions that that arise from our results was that uh, you know we saw this link between pain and muscle fat at age 40, and it disappeared thereafter. But one of the other phenomena that occurs here is that as we get older, we also develop more fat in these same muscles. So in my simple mind, I think about this as developing age-related fat over time. And then we also have pain-related fat that may or may not change over time. And one of the hypotheses that came out of this study was that, well, we could have age-related fat that's diluting the apparent impact of that fat that matters to someone's back pain. So we're, we're attempting to, to, in some ways, reproduce this study with a younger cohort of people who wouldn't necessarily have that age-related fat to help us better, better isolate that potential relationship between the two, the two factors. Yeah, that's really interesting. And a lot of <clears throat> studies that I've been reading lately uh, regarding multifidus, multifidus uh, show that fatty infiltration is is somehow related to to back pain. At least many of the studies have. Um, it also makes me think, based upon what we just said, would there be a relationship between whole body fat percentage and and back pain? Um, and then the the clinician in me thinks, okay, so what can I do about that? Should uh, are there particular exercises that might show to be effective, or would just a general physical conditioning, spinal kind of rehab program be effective? Yeah, the, 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 those are really good questions. And the the first question was something that really. Um, was one of those moments as a researcher that I had to to really stop and take a few steps back and go back and check my data because I was convinced we made a mistake. Um, we, we looked at body mass index as a part of that study, and we wanted to to, to view it as a, as a covariate, as something to control in our analyses to help better isolate the relationship between the muscle fat and the uh, development of back pain. And I guess we all went into it with sort of this intuitive bias that overweight or obese participants would have more fat within their muscles. And, and what we found was actually just the opposite, that, you know, th there really is no strong relationship between uh, overweight or obesity and how much fat you have in these muscles. There's, there's a very low level relationship there, but it's not in the direction that you'd think. So the people who were obese had less fat, and the people who were normal weight were more likely to have more fat in their multifidus muscles. And, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily understand why that is other than, you know, to take a guess and say that there's additional mechanical loading imparted on these muscles uh, in obese individuals that is not present in normal weight people. And maybe that, you know... Uh, additional loading has some impact on how much fat there is. Um, in terms of changing the the state of the the morphology of these these muscles with exercise, um, I, th I think it's you know a very interesting 
uh, avenue of research. It's something that, that with my colleagues we've been thinking about and wanting to do something with for some time. I, I was influenced by a group of researchers at Utah in the physical therapy department there um, when I was doing my PhD who were looking at very similar questions in the quadriceps muscles of, of clinical populations and people with Parkinson's disease and MS and, and also in older people. And what they found was that eccentric exercises seem to be most effective in reducing intramuscular fat within the quadriceps um, of these different populations. And, you know, there's, there's different mechanical explanations for why that is. It, um, but eccentric exercises seem to be a way that you can really increase the amount of work that a muscle does. Um, while putting it in, in, into a relatively low force condition. And so I've always had this idea that, that I'd like to do some trials in, in a form of eccentric exercise for the muscles, but it just hasn't been done. Um, we know that we can increase hypertrophy of these muscles with exercise. Uh, we really know very little about whether we can change the intramuscular fat profile with exercise. But, you know, as with reassurance and advice to stay active, exercise is certainly, you know, one of the most evidence-based interventions that we can provide to our patients who have back pain. And uh, so I, I think it's really important to, to keep that at the front of our mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, regardless of whether it reduces fat, it's still good. <laughs> so still, still engage good. in it. <laughs> Great. Uh, let's get on to uh, theme two, and this is the link between back pain, health behavior, and risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And I know uh, you published a paper in Scientific Reports that specifically goes through that. Um, could you uh, could you talk about the physical activity prospective study with spine pain in children that uh, you published in Scientific Reports? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so this, this was a really cool study. Uh, it, it was um, led by Claudia Franz. The, 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 this was Claudia's study and part of her PhD. So, so she's a, a, a chiropractor uh, who's, who's still in clinical practice and now also a PhD um, from Denmark. And so we were interested in looking at the link between uh, health-related physical activity behaviors and uh, the development of, of uh, back pain in young people. So again, this was part of that larger CHAMP study that I discussed earlier. And so Claudia was really asking the question, uh, do different profiles of physical activity behavior increase or decrease the risk of development of back pain in children? And so we looked at data from about 12, 1,200 children. They were followed in this case for about a year and a half. And uh, their physical activity behavior was measured with accelerometers. So these are like, you know, the Fitbits and, and, and the devices that many people wear. And the important thing with this form of physical activity measurement is that we can distinguish between different intensities of physical activity. So health-related physical activities are typically considered to be those that are of moderate intensity, so that would be like brisk walking, or vigorous intensity, which would be running. Uh, when you're spending time in those intensities of physical activity, then 
they're likely to impart health benefits to you. Um, but certainly, as with anything, there's, there's positive and, and, and there's potential uh, cause for harm, that some forms of physical activity could potentially cause things like back pain. So we looked at this, and previous studies, I, I, I guess an important point of difference in my mind is that previous studies on this topic were conflicting, and that they combined both intensities of physical activity into moderate and vigorous intensity PA, and they reported conflicting findings with some studies showing that kids who got more moderate and vigorous physical activity had more back pain, while other studies showed that more MVPA was associated with less back pain. So we weren't really sure what to do with this. Um, an important aspect of this study is that we, we uncoupled the two intensities of physical activity, and I think we suddenly realized why previous studies had conflicted on, on this topic. What we found was that moderate intensity physical activity, the brisk walking forms of activity, actually lowered the risk of future back pain in these children. When engaging in vigorous intensity physical activity, these children actually experienced more back pain moving forward. And when we looked at the specific types of back pain, Again, I mentioned before, we classified them as being um, traumatic or non-traumatic back pain. It seemed to be that there was a stronger link between vigorous uh, intensity physical activity and the traumatic forms of back pain, which I think is, is pretty intuitive. Um, now, something that I feel really passionate about in this study, and I, I think we, we said very overtly in the study, is that even though vigorous physical activities may increase a child's risk for the development of future back pain, that doesn't mean that we should pull them out of or discourage them from engaging in vigorous levels of physical activity. There's so many other important health benefits that, that are uh, stem, that, that follow on from engaging in vigorous activity. And really, this is a preliminary finding. It's sort of one aspect of health. And so we don't think anyone should have any strong feelings whatsoever about altering vigorous physical activity. I think we just need to recognize it as a potential risk factor and make environments, um, activity and sporting environments as, as safe as we can moving forward. Okay, very, very nice. Uh, another paper, and I, I don't know how much you can talk about it at this point, uh, I'm not sure it's published yet, is a paper about spinal pain prospectively associated with cardiovascular risk factors in girls but not boys. Could, could you talk about whatever you can with that? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the study will be uh, out there by the time people are listening to this. Um, but in, in this case, we looked at the same cohort of children, but we just changed the equation around a little bit. So in the first instance, what I just described was, you know, is physical activity, does that either protect or lead to the development of, of back pain? We change things around here to say, well, for children who have back pain, do they have a higher risk or higher levels of cardiovascular risk factors? Um, and so in my mind, the, the simple hypothesis here is that, well, children who have back pain are, are likely to be less active than children who don't have back pain. And that sedentary behavior could lead to potentially important differences in their profiles for 
uh, risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so again, in, in this really great CHAMP study, uh, we have this fantastic back pain data. Um, but another thing they did as part of that study was they have blood samples that are drawn on these children over the course of years. And we can measure all kinds of interesting things and develop a, a risk profile for cardiovascular disease in children, which is really, really unique. Um, so I, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but in, in some instances, there, there does seem to be an association between having back pain as a child and having an elevated risk for uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, and so that's something that we're, we're hoping to sort of look into further with other studies. And uh, I'm hopeful to be able to, to talk about that study in a more detailed fashion uh, soon. <laughs> yeah, terrific. Uh, and, you know, this discussion about uh, especially the moderate and vigorous uh, forms of physical activity really blend in nicely, I think, with your third theme and that is of sport participation, and can it be viewed as a health intervention for young people? And I'll just mention that uh, the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines for children recommend at least 60 minutes a day, uh, daily, of moderate to vigorous physical activity for children. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a really important thing, and, and I'm glad you're doing this work to find out what relationships there may be with with spine issues. Um, so the, the paper specifically that, uh, I was hoping you could talk about was, uh, called the, the prospective association of organized sport participation, uh, with cardiovascular disease risk in children. Yeah. So we, we published it, this in, uh, Mayo Clinic proceedings, uh, a year or two ago. And uh, this, this was really a fun series of studies uh, for me. Um, we, we looked at, uh, in, in two other studies, we've looked at how participating in sport impacts children's uh, time in health-related physical activity. And we saw that, that sport is indeed a, a, a very important source of health-related physical activity. And we've also looked to see how sport participation is associated with children's uh, level of motor performance. And, you know, in that instance as well, there seems to be a, a real benefit to engaging in organized sport as a child. In this instance, we were looking at whether or not uh, sport was associated with differences in cardiovascular risk, again, using sort of those, those blood profiles. And uh, our, main, our main measure of cardiovascular uh, risk was, was a composite measure where we created a, a model that integrated uh, children's total to HDL cholesterol ratio, their level of serum triglycerides, their level of insulin resistance, and their systolic blood pressure. So we put all these things together as a, as a composite measure. Um, and just like, you know, they measured uh, back pain in this study each week over the course of years, they also measured their sport participation uh, each week. And, and that's really important as most studies ask children or their parents to try to recall over long periods of time whether or not they've played sport and how much sport that they've played. Whereas, you know, I, I think we have less biased information in that those things were tracked on a weekly basis. So we know how often they played sports and what sports they engaged in. 
so the bottom line with this study was that um, sport does seem to be associated with important decreases in uh, cardiovascular disease risk in children. So it's, it, it's slightly disturbing to think that even as, as children and, and, and primary school students in, in, in this case, they're already developing changes at that young age that could potentially lead to the development of serious cardiovascular disease later in life. Um, so we found that the kids who played sport um, had less of these cardiovascular risk factors than children who didn't play sport. And that was mainly driven by lower levels of insulin in the kids who engaged in sport and, and differences in, in uh, re, uh, their HOMA score, which, which is a measure of insulin resistance, um, a, a really important measure for potentially developing diabetes uh, at some point in life. So I, I think, to me, this really puts sport in a different lens, right? It's not just something that's fun to do and fun to engage in and a pleasurable pursuit. It's a potentially important health intervention. And, you know, the difference that we're seeing uh, in children who play sport, the differences in their health-related physical activity are of the same magnitude as clinical trials have shown for behavioral interventions that are really geared at getting kids active. So we seem to be able to do as good or better than that by simply having them engage in sport. So I think there are some really important messages there. Absolutely. And, you know, sport's just fun. It's a great, great way to get children engaged. And, and as a chiropractor, I'm totally biased. Uh, I, I think that we can do a great job at getting, you know, encouraging such participation and encouraging exercise. Um, I did want to ask you a particular question about the paper. Uh, as I read through it, it, uh, there were six schools, uh, children from six, six schools received 270 minutes per week of physical education and four of them received 90 minutes. Did you happen to look at any of the differences between those two schools? Yeah. So that, that, that was a sort of main uh, part of the champ study is to look at the impact of, of more intensive physical education programming. Um, and so we weren't necessarily interested in those differences between the schools uh, for these studies. Um, so what we did was a, a statistical technique to try and uh, take that variability and all, all these measures that we're talking about here today to take that out. So when we ran our statistical uh, methods, we accounted for the type of school that the kid was, uh, that, the, that the child was, um, was, was, was in. And so in that way, we're able to remove essentially the impact of the differences in the PE programs. Gotcha. Um, another thing that just having gone through this discussion where one of the previous papers suggested, or at least there was an association, we'll put it that way, uh, between the more vigorous exercise and a relationship to, to back pain or spine pain. And it seems that the, the studies, uh, you know, including this one, find that uh, higher intensity exercise seemed to be related to better markers of cardiovascular disease. Um, I wonder if you could just 
give any advice to, to chiropractors uh, in terms of the uh, level of activation or exercise uh, that their children participate in? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think as healthcare providers, we really have a responsibility to, to promote um, health-related guidelines in all areas. And certainly there are several good guidelines when it comes to health-related physical activity. So, you know, you, you mentioned the ACSM guidelines earlier. Um, and yeah, young people, children, should engage in at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity on a daily basis. Um, if, if we're talking about you and me, Dean, we should be doing at least 150 minutes of MVPA per week. Uh, so I think, you know, that's really the message that we should focus on when discussing these topics with patients. Um, exercise is, is sometimes a frustrating space to deal with in that it's much like uh, dealing with diet and nutrition. There's a lot of things that are always coming at you, right? There's always the next latest and greatest approach. Uh, and people are, have strong feelings that, that a particular approach is better than some other one. Um, oftentimes that's not a very evidence-based perspective, right? Um, but I think that these public health guidelines for physical activity really should be our sole focus. And, you know, if our patients enjoy a particular pursuit, if CrossFit is what they're passionate about and, and, you know, what gets them out of bed in the morning, then more power to them. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that particular activity is best suited for the next patient, right? Um, exercise is difficult with respect to maintaining our adherence to these guidelines over long periods of time, which is really, really what it takes to have long-term benefit. And so, you know, I think we all just need to find a way to find the pleasure in being active. Um, because, you know, certainly if exercise were, were a drug and we could encapsulate all the benefits of exercise in a pill form, surely everyone would be taking this pill right? Um, the only downside about exercise is that it, it's sometimes inconvenient. It's sometimes uh, potentially uncomfortable. It's just not part of many people's daily routine. Um, and I think that's where we really need to focus our attention and how to get people to do what we all know we should be doing. Um, I, I have a good colleague who's a health psychologist and you know, there's this whole discipline that's aimed at getting people to, to engage in the health behaviors that we all recognize to be important. And it's a really interesting and stimulating area. Um, but I think as chiropractors, we should really focus on those important public health messages. Yep. Very well said. Very well said. Well, Jeff, a, a goal of this uh, podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science like you have and like I have and many others have. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors or students who wish to become scientists? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a big, that's a big question. Um, you know, I, I, I think... Uh, Becoming a scientist and, and going through the training to uh, really drive research, it's something that you need to be passionate about, right? It, it can't just be something that, you know, you want to dip your toe into or you think 
perhaps maybe it could be interesting. It has to be something that really drives you to get out of bed each morning. Um, so I, I would say that if you are a student or a clinician who's thinking perhaps research could be for you, um, you need to find your closest you know, people who you relate to who are engaged in research and start talking to them. See the work that they're doing. Find out what areas of science you, you best identify with. And really, you know, um, seek out mentors. That's probably the best advice. I've, I've had, I've been extremely fortunate in having some, some really, really good uh, mentors in, in research over the years. And it makes all the difference. And, you know, I think as a profession, we're doing a better job in supporting people in that way. I, I think the Carl uh, Fellowship Program is a really good example of, of a successful program that's supporting and nurturing early career researchers. And I think it's those types of efforts that will really pay dividends moving forward, right? That's, that's important. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the Carl program. I think that's just fantastic. I wish we could support five or six programs at once doing something like that. Uh, because, well, we, we need the research and, uh, so there's a lot of people that I think want to do it and hopefully we can support them along the way, uh, like we should support them. And I know Canada has done a fantastic job and Denmark's done a fantastic job. Uh, so hopefully here in the United States and elsewhere around the world, we can do, uh, you know, get close to doing the job that you've done <laughs> there. <laughs> well, I, I think we can learn from, from these examples. Um, so yes, Canada has done a fantastic job in, in creating uh, and in supporting students who are chiropractors to get research degrees, to create positions in public research intensive universities for chiropractors to, to work in and, and do research in. Um, Australia and, and groups like the Chiropractic Australia Research Foundation are doing a fantastic job in providing scholarships to chiropractors who are going on to get their PhDs. Um, th th these are all sort of long-term plans, right? But clearly, we're, we're all in awe of what they're doing in Denmark. And I think that, you know, uh, chiropractic as a profession really requires a cultural shift. Um, in, in other areas of healthcare, like medicine, uh, research is completely ingrained in the fabric of the profession. And uh, chiropractic hasn't necessarily had that as part of our culture traditionally. Um, but it's time. And, and it's something that's, I think, no longer optional. It's something that we need to engage in as soon as possible. They've been extremely successful in Denmark in achieving things that haven't, you know, been thought of to be possible in other parts of the world. And I think they have developed a professional culture there that really supports this. So, you know, while we've had some wins in Canada and had some wins in Australia, um, I think we really need to think bigger. And I, I think it's going to take a cultural, cultural shift, a, a, a really a large change in our profession in the way that we View research as not as something that is kind of a nice thing off to the side that, yeah, perhaps we should support it. Um, it's not that. It's a fundamental aspect of our profession, and it really needs to be viewed and supported as that uh, going forward. Yeah, and, and just one thing to, to add on to that, as far as I know, in Denmark, uh, 
the statistics I've heard is that they see about 20% of the population, maybe even a little bit more than that. And compare that, I don't know what the numbers are currently in Canada, but we're around maybe 10 or 11% at the best uh, here in the United States. So I, I don't know if we can attribute cause and effect uh, in Denmark uh, to the research, but it certainly seems uh, appealing. Well, I, I, I think, you know, it's different in that, you know, talking about cultural changes, well, you know, what's happened because of the research and because of the, the, the really top-notch chiropractic training in Denmark, um, Danish society views chiropractors as spine care experts, right? So when someone hurts their back, their first thought is, okay, I guess I need to go see a chiropractor, right? There, there's really, I, I think, very little question about that. So yes, they've created this 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 uh, cultural authority for the profession there. So a lot of these issues that we struggle with elsewhere in the world are just non-issues in Denmark. And you know, I would certainly argue strongly that that is that cultural um, difference uh, in Denmark is because of of the foresight that people had in setting up not only a, a chiropractic program at, at Southern Denmark University, but also the infrastructure to train chiropractors in research, to support financially uh, researchers and research projects over the course of many, many years. And uh, I think, you know, as I said, we should all learn from their example. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jeff, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast and, and sharing your expertise and learning about all these cool studies you've been up to. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Dean. Thank you very much for having me.